Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. I guess I should probably start planning whatever my 100th episode celebration will be since that is actually coming up pretty quickly. In any case, this week's episode has uh, some of the regular stuff we go through. We have news, which has some very exciting stuff to talk about um, between Netflix and Marvel gosh, and more Marvel. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of really fun stuff. And we will be talking also this month, being October, in comics, some fun things to look forward to. Um, For the comic book picks, we'll be talking comics that came out the week of September 28th. There's some really fun stuff, especially in the indie side of things. And for comic book polls, we will be talking things solicited for this week, the week of the 5th of October. I have the polls... um, sectioned out by publisher again this week, just to see if that might make people, might help them latch on to it a little bit better. Um, And then, of course, we will be talking She-Hulk. We have the seventh episode, The Retreat, from this past week. And to end things on the highest note available, we will be ending it off with Rings of Power, episode six. Super excited to just talk about that, because that was awesome. Real quick here before we get started, please feel free to join the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description. The Discord is a safe, friendly place for socialization and discussion of whatever you want, really, comics, pop culture, or otherwise. And it's also where you can go to find links or images mentioned during the podcast all in one place. You can find me most easily on social media via Instagram. My username is at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and hey, I've got a lot of comics. Uh, my podcast updates, if you want to find those, they'll be mostly on Twitter, where my username is at Savage she Geek because Sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, where I have been working on fixing up the site quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, so make sure you go and check that out, including my beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering hopefully any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga, including recommendations on comics, graphic novels, manga, series, etc. Uh, I also have my reading orders with commentary on appearances of various leading ladies, many of which I use to turn into the monthly Yancey Street specials, also linked all over my site, uh, and they focus on a so far female character from the comics to study thoroughly and then expand upon in a podcast episode of their own. I try to make them pretty relevant. For example, I I'm about 95% done with a Jennifer Walters She-Hulk episode, which is going to be coming out uh, for her show this August. Additionally, anything pre-2021 content-wise can be found written in the website blog for your reference, which was all before I started the podcast. Plus my podcast notes, which are basically all the content of each episode in written format, are made available on my blog as well for reading the podcast instead of listening and for those who are hearing impaired if they'd like to keep up with the podcast events as well. And you can finally find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most, if not all, podcast hosting apps, and also includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also post the podcast episodes in a single playlist format, if that is easier way for you to listen. And I also occasionally post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports in the latest videos, as I have pretty much given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, Uh, but I do have a big backlog of Legends videos, including a tour of our entire collection.
collection. It's a very long video tour. And soon the HasLab Galactus, assuming that he is on his way to go alongside last year's HasLab Sentinel video. I do have a podcast Patreon. You can find it under Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, as well as a Kofi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee situation. And Cash App, Venmo, PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donation towards the podcast, which should appear linked among various other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, I do also have a Redbubble shop called She Geek Shop, but I have been having some issues with their site and whatnot. Um, so I'm working on setting up my own storefront on my site, which hopefully will be coming by the new year and will be faster with more support from listeners. In the news this week, we are going to be talking Werewolf by Night, this month being October in comics, Wakanda Forever and that fantastic new trailer, Deadpool 3, Six Seasons and a Movie, Tarzan, Netflix's Avatar, The Blade Movie, and Marvel's Armor Wars. It is a little bit Marvel heavy this week, but it is all really fun stuff. To start us off, Werewolf by Night. This is actually coming to Disney Plus this Friday, October 7th. This, uh, I'm actually not sure if it's going to be entirely in black and white, but it is an homage to the horror films of the 1930s and 40s and all of the classic themes and tropes that come from all of those kinds of movies. Um, one thing that they also say about this is it's not going to be a really, it's more of a, like a thriller and not the kind of blood and guts gore kind of horror that modern audiences tend to be used to, which does make a lot of sense if it's going to be ending up on Disney+. Plus. As far as cast goes, we have a number of characters that have been revealed as to who they're playing and who, um, who the actors are. Starting off with Gail Garcia Bernal as Jack Russell, Jack Russell being the original Werewolf by Night character from Marvel Comics. We also have Laura Donnelly as Elsa Bloodstone. Elsa Bloodstone follows in the footsteps of her father, uh, as a monster hunter, the Bloodstone clan is all kind of known for their monster hunting abilities due to um, the kind of bloodline going down from her father, etc. Then we have Harriet Sansom Harris playing a character called Verusa, Leonard, oh sorry, Leonardo Nam as Simon, Kirk R. Thatcher as Joven, and finally Eugene Bondurant as Linda. Those last couple of characters I have no insights on because I'm not sure who they are referencing from the comics, if anyone. Uh, but granted, personally, I would very much like them to be comic book references because She-Hulk has left a gaping hole of comic references, um, which with no explanation yet as to why that there is nothing there. But hopefully this will give me a little bit of that that I am jonesing for. As for what this show is particularly, I'm saying show, it's a movie. What the movie is going to be particularly about, the official statement says, On a dark and somber night, a secret cabal of monster hunters emerge from the shadows and gather at the foreboding. Bloodstone Temple following the death of their leader. In a strange and macabre memorial to the leader's life, the attendees are thrust into a mysterious and deadly competition for a powerful relic, a hunt that will ultimately bring bring them face to face with a dangerous monster. Inspired by horror films of the 1930s and 40s, the chilling special aims to evoke a sense of dread and the macabre, with plenty of suspense and scares along the way as we explore a new corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. While I do love that statement, yes, let's go ahead and explore this new corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it does kind of come with a few caveats in the fact that 
not all MCU fans, um, particularly ones who are not too connected to the comics, are interested in expanding what we're seeing in the MCU. And if they are interested in it, it's not really sticking with them all the time. We've talked about it previously on this podcast about how a lot of people, audiences, um, seem to be under the impression that anything post-Iron Man in the MCU is rather not worth witnessing in any way um when in all reality iron man himself would have been given that reaction pre the iron man movies actually being successful which it did take a little bit of time for them to catch on it was not an immediate thing and even today in the comics iron man while he is an avenger he is not necessarily the top a, you know, the, the crowd favorite character. There are people who really like him. Christopher Cantwell did a great job with his series. Um, but the fact of the matter is that Iron Man was a potentially D at best list character um, before the MCU got started. And so I'm a little bit concerned that while Werewolf by Night does look very exciting and very different, um, that difference will leave it a little bit disconnected to the rest of the main MCU, and therefore audiences will not really see a reason to watch this or promote others watching it or anything like that, um, because they don't see a, a, a point to it adding to the universe. And I, I can understand that concern. Um, it really, you know, for Werewolf by Night, it really kind of depends on what they're planning to do with this after the fact. My immediate assumption, especially with Jack Russell and Elsa Bloodstone um, being the main characters of this, is that we will see them again tying into a lot of the kind of underworld of Marvel anti-heroes and things like Blade and the Black Knight and characters like that who we know are going to be showing up in the MCU. Um, they're a little bit far off, and we'll talk more about Blade when we get more into the news in a second here, but... It also kind of ties into, is Marvel, Disney Marvel, are they doing too much too fast for the MCU? Um, like, is this something that they should have spent more time focusing on, on promoting? They really haven't done a very good job of promoting this, if I'm being honest. It's just over the past weekend that I started seeing them promote it, period. And it comes out in three days. Um, you know, Wakanda Forever. Up until yesterday, we had only seen one trailer, and it comes out in a month. Just over a month. I personally know people who are not ears to the ground in these communities the way that I am, who did not know this movie was coming out already. They saw the first trailer, they figured it will be like March of next year. No, it's November, it's next month. More than one person who I personally know was surprised by that. So the concern for Werewolf by Night, while I have no doubt that it will be supremely enjoyable, um, whether or not it will be successful, I can't particularly predict right now. It's, it's, I think it will also be um, a little bit telling as to what Marvel is going to try in the future, depending on how this kind of one-off special goes. This is the first podcast episode of October, and so we will talk a little bit about exciting new things to be looking forward to in comic books in October. Um, this is not going to include things that are continuing. This is more of new things that are coming out um, and noteworthy things. So starting off with Marvel, uh, they've got a couple of things they're celebrating this month. First off being Miracle Man. Um, it's an anniversary or something, and so they have a number of Miracle Man comics that are going to be coming out this month as well 
as most series are going to have a Miracle Man variant cover coming out for them at some point as well. Dan Slott is back with Spider-Man. This is not the Amazing Spider-Man series being rebooted. That one is still happening. This is just kind of to the side of that. For some reason, they've given Dan Slott this new Spider-Man series, and that is going to be kind of a continuation, as I understand it, of his Spider-Verse story arc, we'll say. Also in October at Marvel, Judgment Day is ending. That's the Avengers X-Men Eternals because they are running out of ideas, I guess, and so they're just going to throw it all and see what sticks. In all reality, it's it's a it the based on the last issue, it might actually be a fun ending to this event. Um you know, world changing for Marvel definitely not never is, but <laughs> fun is definitely a possibility. Uh, we'll be getting a Crypt of Shadows Halloween one shot, which I am very excited for. It's actually going to have a lot of characters like Blade and Elsa Bloodstone in it, and we're getting a new Wakanda series by writers Stephanie Williams and Evan Narcisse. We're also getting from Christopher Cantwell as his Iron Man series is ending this month. We are getting a five issue series for Namor called Namor Conquered Shores, and that's going to be with artist Pascal Ferry. Finally, we are getting the end of the Variance finale, the end of the Variance finale, the end of the Variance series, we'll be getting the finale for that miniseries, uh, which is Gail Simone and Phil Noto. At DC Comics, we are going to start the month off with a new Harley Quinn animated series, series. Um, they've been doing a couple of them. This, I believe, is the third iteration of animated Harley Quinn show in the comics. We'll be getting from um, also Evan Narcisse, who we just talked about in the Wakanda series at Marvel. He's going to be writing Batman Gotham Knights Gilded City, which is going to be a six-issue series with art by Abel, whoever that is. I should look it up. Uh, we're getting Batman Incorporated, as I, as far as I can tell, an ongoing series from Ed Brisson with art by John Tim, so that's pretty exciting. And John Ridley is back with another six-issue series for uh, DC Black Label with GCPD Blue Wall. Teeny Howard and Blake Howard, I'm guessing they're related or at some format, um, are writing Punchline Gotham Game uh, alongside artist Gleb Mel... Melnikov? Melnikov. And then finally, Paul Dano's Riddler Year One, which is of six issues, is starting with artist Steven Subic, which no, is not me mispronouncing uh, the guy whose name looks like it says Sejic. This really is a different person. Stevan Subic. There's a couple of noteworthy things happening in Image this at Image Comics this month, including Dark Ride Number One by Joshua Williamson, with art by Andre Brisson and Andre uh, Ooh Adriano Lucas. Sorry, we also have Three Keys Number One by David Messina and art also by David Messina. Mark Millar is back with his final installment of American Jesus. Hitomi number one kicks off by H.S. Tak and Isabella Mazzanti. And uh, Kaya number one is actually one from this week by Wes Craig and Wes Craig. And finally from Image, I'm looking forward to Lovesick number one, which is a creator project by Luana Vecchio, Vecchio and it is drawn by her as well. Over at Dark Horse, Mike Mignola is back with Hellboy in Love, which is going to be a six-issue series with art by Christy Golden. And uh, that leaves Dynamite, where we have Siren's Gate by Shannon Mare, Sweetie Candy Vigilante by Suzanne Caffiero, and Unbreakable Red Sonia by Jim Zub and Giovanni Vietta, 
all of which for Dynamite are actually coming out this week. If there's anything else that you were wondering about for comics in this month or any particular week or coming up or anything like that, and I don't have the answers to those that I am offering up freely in the podcast because you haven't asked me the question, you can always ask your own comic book shop um, or email them or call them. You don't actually have to even be there in person. Um, If you want to know more about what comics are coming out, I have never gone over every single comic in any given week or month that is coming out. That would be an incredible amount of effort and work and I am just don't read I I don't read every single comic that comes out that would again be an incredible amount of work Um, and I'm not interested in all of them that's just not how it goes but there is comics for everybody and there is so much more than what I discuss on this podcast so if you have been trying to get into comics um, be sure to go and in some way contact a local comic book shop and I can guarantee you they will be more than happy to find you something based on your other interests that will probably strike interest with comics for you. As of yesterday, we finally have another trailer for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which is coming out in about a month now. Tickets are on sale already. This was another great trailer. I don't think anything will ever surpass their first teaser they put out. That was point for point phenomenal. Um, But this one was really fun as well, and it makes the movie look like it's going to be pretty fantastic, which I have no doubt. Things that we see in this trailer, obviously Queen Normanda, played by Angela Bassett. We see Shuri, played by Letitia Wright. Nakia by Lupita Inyongo, Okoye, Danai Gurria, 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 yeah. Mbaku is Winston Duke. Uh, we also have a couple other things that we will go through, uh, like Michaela Cole is joining the cast as Aneka, who is a new Wakandan warrior. You know, we have uh, Riri's Mark II armor. It, uh, Riri, of course, Riri Williams, will be played by Dominique Thorne kind of following in the footsteps of Iron Man, but obviously has her own style of doing things. Very brief shots of the of the suit that we saw, um, and it looks pretty much like the, the action figures that are out there of her already, so um, that all looks good. I came across a really great, actually, and you'll find it linked in the description below, a really great um, Entertainment Weekly article that they went through and interviewed a number of the cast and everything. I imagine it'll be one of their magazines or something. It'll pop out. Um, But there's a couple of things I wanted that they mentioned in that article that I wanted to mention here. The first was this really nice um, kind of line about the movies. It says, if the first Black Panther was the story of T'Challa, then Wakanda Forever is the story of the nation he loved and fought to defend. The film picks up after the events of Avengers Endgame and the historically secretive country has revealed itself to the world, sharing its advanced technology while also attracting new threats. Um, We also have kind of updates on each character. It says each character is grappling with change in a different way. Duke's M'Baku is still leading the Jabari tribe while taking a more prominent role in Wakandan affairs. Guerrera says the ever-faithful Okoye remains fiercely loyal to her country and, quote, would would gladly give her life for it. And the stoic Crane Ramonda is reckoning with unimaginable loss, first the death of her husband and now her son T'Challa. As for Ramona's daughter, Wright says Shuri has buried herself in her technology and is spending most of her time in her laboratory, locking herself away as she grieves for her brother. We also, um, it's not confirmed. I won't say confirmed. We do see a female Black Panther in this trailer. That I will say is confirmed. That is a female Black Panther. 
I won't say that it's Shuri Panther. It most likely is, especially if you're looking at a lot of the posters they've been putting out uh, between yesterday and today across social media, and Shuri is dead center in every single one of them, uh, much the way that T'Challa had been in previous posters, so I think it's pretty clear she will be the one taking up the Black Panther suit. Um, it is a very cool-looking suit. I like the little changes they made, kind of design details to accentuate the suit being on a more feminine kind of body. We did not see any jewelry. There's, of course, metal detailing on the suit, as as uh, Chadwick's had. There's no jewelry in this footage on, for the suit, the way that we see her a lot wearing in the comics. But we do know that her father wore a more ceremonial-type garb in his panther suit, so I am holding out hope that we were going to have a scene with her looking... I guess I'll fancy it up like that as the, the new Black Panther. So that's something to look forward to getting revealed for the movie as well. The main thing I think that people want to take away that I want to take away for this trailer is, of course, Namor. Uh, we got a few more shots of him in this. He looks super, super cool, and I'm just generally excited about it. He is, of course, being played by Mexican actor Tino Cuerta, um, and he is... Physically, uh, he has all the details that comic book Namor needs to have. He has the pointed ears. He uh, has the, uh, I would say, above water skin color, because it's not blue, right? Um, he has like a humanoid or human skin color, I guess you would say. Um, and he has the winged feet, which we saw very briefly in the first trailer um, with him as a baby. Um, and it oh, just gets me more excited about that first trailer. It was a great trailer. <laughs> But we see the winged feet in action in this trailer, which is awesome. Um, I think they did a wonderful job of figuring out how to translate, let's be honest, a fairly awkward system of flying into being live action. He kind of hops through the air. Um, if you can picture, you know, was, I'm sure there's been tons of them in these hero movies where the person jumps across, like, discs, you know, Sue Storm or... Um, Scott Free. I can't think of anybody else besides them right now, but uh, they kind of like hop across discs and think, oh, Ms. Marvel did it. There you go. She did it in the Disney Plus show recently. So uh, he kind of does a similar thing. But he's not landing on anything. Um, he's just kind of like hopping through the air like that. Like, uh, you know, in a lot of video games, you can double jump like you jump once and then you jump the second time when you're like midair and it gets you to go further. He does that, but constantly. That's how he flies. He, he, he double jumps and double jumps and it just keeps on going without ever having to touch the ground to re-double jump, you know? I think it's, I think that's a pretty great translation to wing feet, feet wings. Of the character of Namor, director Ryan Coogler, Coogler says, He's always been really cool and charismatic, but also arrogant. He's kind of an asshole, kind of romantic, and just incredibly powerful. Now, as I understood this quote, Coogler is speaking of the film Namor. Oh god, I am hoping he is, because that is a great description of Namor, and if they translate that description into the film Namor, I think everybody is going to be pretty happy. Cool, charismatic, arrogant, kind of an asshole, romantic, and super powerful, literally hitting it all on the head there. One thing that they are going to be changing, though, um, and I w didn't have this confirmed until this article, I think, I'm not sure where this first was, why I first heard it, but I'd seen it floating around, uh, that Na uh, Namor is not going to be ruling Atlantis. It's probably a good thing because that is a very overused fantasy sea location name. Uh, they're going to be calling it 
Talokan, which I most definitely said wrong, or at least pronounced wrong. Um, what they have it described as is a lavish Mesoamerican civilization hidden under the sea. Specifically, Talokan draws inspiration from Mayan culture, and the filmmakers and production team work closely with Mayan historians and experts. Like their enemies in Wakanda, Talokan itself has a rich history and has remained hidden from the rest of the globe. Which really makes them perfect to go up against each other because they are so similar and they both have so much to lose and have probably already lost a fair amount if we had to guess about the Talokan story, Namor's story. And I'm still going to be, um, I still have the theory, I'm pretty much convinced is going to be happening in this movie is that these two nations are warring with each other because there is a third party who is instigating it, and that third party, of course, would be Victor Von Doom, aka Doctor Doom. You cannot convince me otherwise until I see the movie. We are also going to be getting Mexican actress Mabel Cadena as Namora and Venezuelan actor Alex Levin... Livinali, Livinai, La, 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 sorry, Livinali as Atuma, who is a weird shark-headed dude in the comics, and thankfully they did not make that a thing for the live action. <laughs> Tena Cuerta, aka Namor himself, he has a few statements that he's made on the inclusivity of this movie, uh, and this one from the same Entertainment Weekly article I thought was very much worth mentioning. He says, you can research whatever culture you want, but if you have people from that culture and they have that knowledge and experience, not just from books, but from being alive, the approach is totally different. That's what inclusion means. It's not just putting some brown-skinned people in front of the camera or giving them an important role. It's how you're creating the movie. Who is directing? Who is writing? Who is the voice of the production of the movie? And that they're pretty much direct addresses uh, some concerns that fans had about the inclusion of Mesoamerican culture in Wakanda Forever was that potentially the people who were involved uh, behind the cameras were not actually first-person knowledge experienced in that kind of culture. And so seeing that they brought in a number of historians and a number of real-life you know, Mexicans and Mesoamericans and people who, you know, their ancestors have the stories that were passed down to them and things like that. They could get those first person experiences and stuff from them. That is that is great to hear, uh, because, again, like just like he said, that is how you appropriately do inclusion. The last thing about this new Wakanda Forever trailer that I want to mention is the name that they kind of refer to, or I should say the the deity that they refer to um, with in reference to Namor and the kind of persona and headpiece that he takes on uh, when he puts that garb on, I guess. Um, it's something that is said in the trailer by Umbaku. He says that they don't call him... Um, no, not that they don't call him. It's just they, he says they call him, and I'm going to brutalize this pronunciation, I'm sorry, Kukulkan, um, the serpent, he says the feathered serpent god, um, which was a really interesting thing because um, I have to credit the person who tweeted this. I'll credit them in the description. Um, but he tweeted this a little while ago before this trailer came out. He said his name was headpiece, the god Kukulkan, or... Uh, there's another name for it that I'm not going to even try pronouncing because I'll make a fool of myself. He says, wonder if it's like Wakandans that had the Black Panther or Panther God Bast and they have Kukulkan and their king takes on Namor's role by birth and that's why Namor has feet, wings, and can fl 
and can fly just like their god. That's pretty spot on if you ask me. So kudos to that person on Twitter for having come up with that theory and it basically checking out 100%. It does seem that um, Namor is kind of taking up a not deity position, but maybe Avatar is, is the right one, right? Because we have uh, Bast, her avatar is Black Panther. You have Khonshu, his avatar is Moon Knight. And then here we have Kuku Khan, whose avatar is Namor, right? Is I feel like that makes sense. Um, it doesn't really answer if he is going to be seen as the, like, reborn deity, um, or if it's kind of just a symbolic representation. The fact that he is born with the differences because he is a half human and B mutant, uh, which we already have had confirmed. He is going to be found to be mutant at some point in, you know, MCU history. Um, they, they already, they've already confirmed that. Um, he's born different than the other, uh, not Atlanteans, but the other, um, Telokins, I guess you would say. So I'm curious how far the extent of that goes, um, of his being the so-called feathered serpent god. You know, are they, do they believe he is their god reborn? Do they believe that because he is born different, that is why he is able to take up the throne and lead their people? I'm curious what exactly the, um, dynamic is going to be between Namor and the rest of his people and this particular feathered serpent god. Um, I think I've covered everything from the trailer that I wanted to cover. Really, really loved it. Um, I have no doubt this movie is going to be utterly fantastic, and I don't even think it's really worth addressing, but, you know, they did, I think it was um, Kevin Feige had come out and said something about why they never recast T'Challa. Um, I don't think that, I, I like, personally, <laughs> I never thought that was something to question, because it just seemed pretty obvious, like, why would they? Th th there's a lot of reasons, honestly. There's way more reasons not to than to. Uh, but he basically, what he said was that it was too soon, which, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, it's way too soon. It's still too soon. And now they've, that they've put out this, they're putting out the second movie without him. There's no reason for them to ever recast him. So please, please stop tweeting recast T'Challa. It is so annoying and wildly disrespectful to Chadwick Boseman's memory. But, you know, I guess do your thing. Finally, moving onward and upward, uh, actually just after I had posted the podcast episode last week, it was announced that uh, Wolverine is going to be in Deadpool 3. Yes, Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, I'm sure everybody's heard this by now, Ryan Reynolds put up a cute little video of him basically saying he has, they, we have no idea what we're doing for Deadpool 3. Hey, Hugh, you want to come back and be Wolverine? And then Hugh walks by and is like, all right, I guess so. Um, which, of course, the internet absolutely exploded and people were losing their minds and only ever had follow-up questions and opinions. Uh, main question being, but but Wolverine died in Logan, so how does that work? And they actually made this video to follow up on that that was basically, Logan takes place in, what, 2027, 2028, something like that. So even if this is considered the same universe as that, which they don't have to say that for any reason, um, then it's you know they got time he's around um the other thing that this has brought up a lot for some especially comic readers is does this mean that when we get wolverine in the mcu it's gonna be laura kinney because that would be 
So cool. Also, Daphne Keene, who played Laura in the uh, Logan movie, right? She has aged up to be the perfect Laura. She is the perfect age. She has the still the look as great as it was when she was a child or a kid, whatever. Um, Marvel, I'm, I'm sure they've already decided what they're doing with Wolverine for the, when they, if they do X-Men, but uh, please do this because I think we would want it. I, I think the majority of people would be super down to have Laura Kinney as the main MCU Wolverine it might cause a little confusion, but all you have to do is a tiny, tidy little explanation as to, you know, Deadpool stole her genes or something. I don't know. You could make it easy enough. But in any case, um, Wolverine, yeah, Hugh Jackman was Wolverine in Deadpool 3. That'll be super cool. Although, I assume there is always the possibility um, <laughs> that this is just actually going to be Hugh Jackman and not Wolverine. And Deadpool's going to show up looking for Wolverine uh, to Broadway, and Hugh Jackman, the Broadway actor and performer, will be there and will be very confused as to why a mercenary is flinging guns around in his cast room. Uh, that's kind of what I hope it is, because that would be pretty funny. But that's also, I feel like, exactly what people would expect them to do. So maybe not. Maybe not. We'll kind of have to just wait and see. Six seasons in a movie. I have no idea where that came from. I think it came from within the show itself. But Community, the prophecy is playing out to completion. Um, let me let me get those words in the right order. We are getting a Community movie. Yay! So at some point when Community, the TV show, was going, uh, I believe it was MZ, yeah, NBC, um, for whatever reason, they started saying, oh yes, this show's gonna get six seasons and a movie. I don't remember, like, if it started as a hashtag or if it started within the show, but it's been, like, for as long as I've known about Community, I've understood the inside joke of six seasons and a movie. It's it's the whole thing. And they even got cancelled, well, twice, because they got cancelled on NBC in 2009, and then, no, sorry, I, that's totally wrong. It started on NBC in 2009, they got cancelled as a show at some point and then it got picked back up for Yahoo and then that one got canceled after I think just the one season uh, in 2015 but we have the six seasons now that Yahoo season made it six seasons and as of a couple of days ago um uh, Joel McHale I believe is what was the one who tweeted that they are officially going to be doing a peacock sorry a community movie on Peacock. That's going to be the the platform. I guess it's going to be a streaming movie. Um, also, on that note, just a quick thought. Really funny how streaming services have uh, completely rewritten the idea of straight to uh, like straight to video movies. Like ten years ago, straight to video movies. Like you hear something straight to video. Oh, that's because it's super low budget and it sucks, and so they're just going straight to video. <laughs> And now it's totally different. So straight to video, you're excited because it's like, yes, I'm going to see it faster because everything is put on streaming now, right? Anyway, um, this is going to be with creator Dan Harmon, who, of course, created the original community. Uh, the original cast of community included Childish Gambino, known as Donald Glover, or I guess the other way around, Chevy Chase, Allison Brie, Danny Pudi, Joel McHale, Ken Jong, and Yvette Nicole Brown. Now, we already know, confirmed, that Chevy Chase is not returning for this movie. Honestly, thank goodness. Uh, he was the least 
the least likable character on that whole show. Uh, but I guess he had some falling out with Dan Harmon. I don't think anybody out there has not heard of what an asshole Chevy Chase apparently is IRL. Um, but the only other two we're not sure about yet, uh, Donald Glover and Yvette Nicole Brown, for whatever reason, we don't know if they are going to be back yet. Um, Donald Glover, AKA Childish Gambino left the show. I think two seasons before it ended. Um, so a season before it was canceled on NBC and then they did the Hulu season without him. Sorry. Yahoo season without him as well. Um, if I recall, and I mean no disrespect to him for this, but his he wanted to focus on things that were more to his speed. Um, he went on and he did some music, which was a lot ahead of its time. You know, if you go back and listen to Childish Gambino albums from ten years ago, it feels like music coming out now. He was he was he was too ahead of his time, but it was remarkable. But in any case, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, he did Atlanta, which if you haven't seen, I highly recommend. He's done a number of things. Um, you know, he was, for a while, there was a Deadpool project and there was a Spider-Man project. And, you know, he had Miles Morales created after him. I think that was actually while he was still on Community. But in any case, we are not sure yet if Donald Glover or Yvette Nicole Brown are going to be in the show. But the one thing we do know is that Joel McHale tweeted and tagged them in the tweet announcing the movie. Um... So presumably they will all be there and it will be an entire return of the cast aside from Chevy Chase. Ken Jong, I actually haven't seen if he's, I, I think people are assuming he's coming back, but I'm not sure it's actually been addressed yet specifically. But in any case, I have no idea this far along. It's been seven years since we saw the last community project. Um, who knows? And also, um, I, I would definitely imagine that Jim Rash is also coming back. Uh, Jim Rash being the Dean, Dean Craig Pelton. <laughs> um, on that note, he is also going to be in the Ironheart show as somebody at, what is it, Harvard? No, it's um, MIT, right? Some, somebody at MIT who is like constantly butting heads with Riri, who is one of his students. Holy shit, did they cast Jim Rash as the dean of MIT for Marvel? That would be funny. We're getting off track again. Uh, community, six seasons and a movie, it is happening. Uh, somewhat briefly, um, there is a Sony. Sony has purchased Tarzan rights uh, because they are now planning on making a 21st century retelling of the Tarzan story. Which makes me think you know, uh, George of the Jungle much, but I guess that kind of remains to be seen depending on what they do with it. Um, all, I have no comment really for this. I just thought it was kind of fun to mention because, uh, the animated Tarzan movie that we all, you know, know and love or hate or whatever has some of the best music ever to come out of an animated Disney movie. Um, I, I don't think anybody's going to dispute that here. Um, so no matter what happens with this Sony Tarzan, I can guarantee you they will never reach the legendary status that the soundtrack for the animated Tarzan reached. It will never happen, but good luck to them. It is time for your annual rewatch of Avatar The Last Airbender because they have cast a buttload of new people in the Netflix live-action Avatar TV series. It is on Netflix, it is going to be live-action, and it is a TV series, so checking all those boxes. All right, uh, let's see who 
this all is. Now, some of these, um, this is going to be like a, just a list of characters and actors. Um, so it's going to, the headline for this, if if you get confused at all, was the last Airbender series at Netflix cast 20, including George Taikei, Utkarsh Ambudokar, I'm sorry, Ut- Utkarsh Ambudkar, oh, I said it right the first time, Arjun Sho and Danny Pudi. So they have this split up, um, I have a variety article that I took this from, they have it split up into tribes, the Water Tribe, the Earth Kingdom, the Fire Nation, uh, and then some spirit people, and what we already previously had as cast members, which a few of I missed the announcement for, um, so that's really exciting, and we'll go over those when we get there. But starting with the Water Tribe, we have Amber Midthumber, Thunder, sorry, from Prey is playing Princess Yue, who we know as the uh, you know, princess of the Northern Water Tribe. We have A. Martinez from Cowboy Bebop playing Paku, um, who is a veteran veteran waterbending master of the Northern Water Tribe and fierce defender of traditions. Irene Bedard from The Stand is playing Yagoda, an empathetic healer who serves as a role model for the fe- tribe's female waterbenders. Then we have Joel Ouellette from Ruby and the Well playing Han, a strong and skilled warrior with an unwavering loyalty to his tribe. Nathaniel Arcand from Heartland is playing Chief Arnook, princess or father to Princess Yui and leader of their tribe. And then we have Miguan Fairbrother from Mohawk Girls as Avatar Kuruk, a previous avatar with a haunted past. I imagine that's a character who we have seen in the show before. I can't actually remember previous water tribe avatars before Korra. Um, I know the one before Aang was... Um, Kiyoshi, right? She was, I think, the Earth one. Anyway, moving on to the Earth Kingdom characters. Arden Cho is playing June. She was on Partner Track, which I thought was so terrible on Netflix. It wasn't her fault, though. It was a bad script. Um, She says June is a tough and persistent bounty hunter known for her ruthless efficiency. Then we have, um, oh, okay, yeah, Utkarsh M. Budkar, who is on the U.S. version of Ghosts. If you watch that, it's a really good show. As King Boomy, yes, King Boomy, it says the ancient and mercutial ruler of the Earth Kingdom city of Omashu. Then you have Daniel Pudi of Community and Mythic Quest. He's playing the mechanist, an eccentric inventor and engineer who's doing his best to raise his son in a war-torn world. Uh, Then you have Lucian River Chuan. Chuahan from Encounter playing Tio, an idealistic and high-flying son of the mechanist, and finally James Sai from Stillwater as the cabbage merchant. Ooh, my cabbages! If you have watched the show, you are aware of who this character is. <laughs> and then at the Fire Nation, we have Mamona Tamada from the Babysitters Club playing Tai Lee. We know her the energetic and upbeat teen, and one of Princess Azula's best friends. We have Talia Tran from Raya and the Last Dragon playing Mai, who is the unflappable and deadpan teen, who aside, Tai Lee is one of Princess Azula's closest allies. Again, these names, if you know the show, are probably very familiar. We have Rui Iskander, who is from Benders, which I've never heard of, playing Lieutenant G, the first officer of Prince Zuko's ship. Hiro Kanagawa from Altered Carbon and Man in the High Castle is Fire Lord Sozin, uh, the big leader there, the ruthless and ambitious previous ruler of the Fire Nation and grandfather to Fire Lord 
Ozai. Uh, C.S. Lee from Dexter and Warrior is playing Avatar Roku, who we know was the previous Avatar um, from the Fire Nation. And Francois Chao from The Expanse, um, who is exactly what you're thinking of, who you're thinking of if you think of the Expanse. She is playing the Great Sage, the venerated spiritual leader of the Fire Nation and guardian of Avatar Roku's shrine. And finally, we have Ryan Ma from The Good Doctor and Snowpiercer as Lieutenant Dang, Commander Zhao's second in command. Finally, George Taike, who needs no introduction, he joins the spirit realm voicing Ko, an ancient predatory spirit. If my memory serves, Ko is the face stealer and legitimately one of the scariest things to ever happen in the Avatar universe. Uh, Randall Duck Kim from John Wick is voicing Washi Tong, who appears in the form of a giant owl and is also known as the Spirit of Knowledge. Now, previously announced cast members, it says we have we've had our Anne Katara Sokka Zuko, um, that was Gordon Comier. It's it's a bunch of kids. Um, nothing too exciting. <laughs> we have uh, Azula Elizabeth Yu. Uncle Iroh, I did not know we already had, and that is Paul Sun Hyung Lee. Do you, if you don't know who that is, he was um, Appa from, uh, gosh, Kim's Convenience. You know, Appa, main, the main character, the dad. Um, and he was also, you know, he had, a, he had a role in Star Wars that people were really excited for him for. Uh, he looks going to be Uncle Iroh. That's super exciting. Fire Lord Ozai, current king of the Fire Nation. Daniel Day Kim. I couldn't believe that. That is, like, I swear, they got every well-loved uh asian actor in the world um who has who was like known from the from the western perspective i guess um they got all of them i'm super excited for this movie uh, sorry tv show i keep saying movie uh but it is going to be a tv show and based on all of this i mean they have to do something really really bad to get all of this cast together the way that they have and blow it. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume this is going to be fantastic. Bring it on. Wrapping up the news here with some updates for Marvel projects. Uh, the first being Blade. <laughs> there was a Variety article put out in the past week that really, really concerned most people. <laughs> the fact that um, the director of Blade, uh, Bassam Tariq, left the film two months before they start shooting or start production, I guess. That's a really bad sign. Uh, in addition, uh, Mahershala Ali, who again is playing Blade and is a two-time Oscar winner. Not that means much. Look at Jared Leto and Morbius. Um, he is apparently very frustrated with what they've given him so far because the script is allegedly only 90 pages long and features only two lackluster action sequences. So Mahershala Ali is apparently very frustrated with what they've kind of given him so far to the point that now the whole movie is being rewritten from scratch. Whether or not this is going to be following the same kind of plot they wanted to do before, who knows? Um, I imagine they're they're just trying to make it the same movie, but just better. Um, and this has also started to bring up the conversation of, is Kevin Feige being spread too thin, i.e., are they doing too much too fast, that things just aren't being kept up with and aren't being given the same treatment maybe they were five years ago? Um, 
I kind of had mentioned that earlier on when we were talking about stuff earlier in the news, specifically the marketing and advertising for uh, all kinds of promotion for both Wakanda Forever and Werewolf by Night. It really seems like they've dropped the ball on. Is that Kevin Feige's fault? I have no idea. I generally don't. I doubt it, though. Um, I don't think he has as much to do with marketing in Disney incorporate in the Walt Disney Company, you know. Um, but it does bring up some concerns. I, well, the good thing about this, of course, is that they have seen the concerns and they are addressing them by rewriting the whole movie. So hopefully we'll get something much better. Marshall Ali will hopefully not leave the project in frustration. <laughs> it has been so long since they announced that he was going to be Blade. I don't blame him for being frustrated. <laughs> And the last update we have for the MCU for news period today is for Armor Wars. Uh, this was going to be a Disney Plus show spinning out of um, Secret Invasion a little bit, um, but that they have changed now that they are going to turn it from a series to a feature film. Uh, generally, this is seen as a positive move because it will allow for more budget and focus and time uh, for the feature to be put together properly and will hopefully prevent fantastic actors like Don Cheadle from abandoning projects. I would really hate for that to happen with Blade either, with Mahershala Ali. Um, that was honestly the first thing I thought about when I heard that the movie script that the director has left and the script is only 90 pages long and Mahershala Ali is frustrated and it's got lackluster action. And uh, My first thought was, oh, he's going to leave the movie. He doesn't need this. We're Marvel is the one who needs him. <laughs> so good thing they're addressing it. Armor Wars... Uh, also potentially addressing issues before they appear by turning it into a movie. Uh, so hopefully all good news on those cases. Comic book picks for this episode come from the week of the 28th of September. I don't have too much to discuss, to be honest. I'm a little bit behind on reading comics. Um, but we'll have a, a line or two to say about each one of these. Starting off with Briar number one, uh, which I believe was Christopher Cantwell. Yes, I was right on that. Obviously, this is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty. I love fairy tale retellings. Um, this was a really good start. I, I enjoyed it. A little bit slow because they're obviously setting things up and have to give the backstory of everything here. Um, but I definitely think that by the time we get to the second issue, things will be up and running well enough that we won't have any more of that kind of pacing problem, and uh, we can just go straight into the action. Grim number five is not the end of the series, but it was the end of the first arc, and I believe it's going to be December before they are back with a new issue, um, if not even the next, the new year. Uh, the big reveal of this issue, of course, is they have found death now, and now they are discovering that our protagonist is not only, you know, there's a lot of things going on. She's his daughter, is the deal. She's Death's daughter. <laughs> and that's why a lot of this stuff is happening and why when she looked to see what her the moment of her death, she saw her birth because everything is a little bit twisted around for her because she is the daughter of Death. Um, and I believe Death sacrificed himself in this issue to save her. Um, so we will uh, have to wait a couple of months to see what happens next. 
Flaw number one was a really fantastic start to a new indie series. Basically goes around over a, it follows a therapist who pretty much nightlights as a vigilante. Um, there's some good lines in it about how you're trying to keep your life and your work separate. And then she hears about, you know, somebody who is killing young black girls. Um, and so she uses the information the client gives to hunt him down and do what she does. So it's a little bit satisfying, I won't lie, <laughs> to see that happen in comics. Sins of the Black Flamingo number four. This is of five. So we are almost finished with this one. Things got really crazy in this issue. Um, I won't lie. I was a bit lost for a good section of it. Um, but it seems that we're kind of coming to a head with this whole religious conspiracy that's kind of happening a little bit unfolding uh, between an angel and potentially all kinds of demonic power. Harley Quinn number whatever it was, I didn't write it down. Uh, the issue is not a surprise. Harley Quinn gets murdered in it, uh, but she also gets brought back. Again, not really a surprise, uh, but she gets brought back in a... Lazarus pit that wasn't quite right. Um, so there's going to be some complications in that. Thunderbolts number two, I will not, I'll probably not be continuing with the series because uh, it's a whole team of really great characters and a good amount of female characters, but it pretty much just focuses on Clint Barton and I do not like the character of Clint Barton. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting female characters here. You get America Chavez, you get um, you know, by, not by, Monica, Monica Rambeau, um, and whoever the new female character is, who I don't even know what her name is, you know, they just don't appear very much in it. So I won't be continuing personally. X-Men number 15 was actually quite good. <laughs> Big old twist you didn't see coming there, huh? Um, this one goes over the children of the vault. Um, which was really, really cool. Basically, the issue plays out as if the Children of the Vault, which is a Jonathan Dickman creation, as if they escape. Um, but then, as the issue plays out, they, you see that they escape, they kill everybody, they destroy Earth, and then they continue through into Asgard to basically destroy the entire universe and rule everything. Um, and you're like, what? What's going on? And then basically what what actually is happening is Forge is the best. That's what's happening. Uh, Forge managed to use the concept, you know, the conspiracy theory of, oh, we are actually living in a simulation to put the children of the vault in their own simulation so that they think that they did all of that, that they left the vault and killed everybody in the universe and became rulers of the universe. When in really, they're in, like, their own little pod, <laughs> and it's all a big Matrix simulation. So I actually really enjoyed that issue. Um, Forge is now in the vault himself looking for Darwin, I believe it is. Um, not sure why he was there. I missed those issues, I guess. But um, it'll be interesting. They know that he's there, and he does not know that they know that he's there. So hopefully uh, Forge will be okay. Now for this week's comic book pulls. These will be comics coming out this week, the week of October 5th. I've got things broken up by publisher, so let's go going with Skybound, where we have Dark Ride number one coming from Joshua Williamson with art by Andre Bresson. 
Devil Land has been the world's premier horror-themed amusement park for over 50 years, home to the scariest ride ever created, The Devil's Due. But when lifelong fan Owen Seasons begins his first day on the job, he will discover the true horrors happening behind the scenes, the truth about the park's reclusive creator, Arthur Dante, and that job of his dreams that the job of his dreams just might be a living nightmare. We have covers for this issue by Andre Bresson, Martin Morazzo, Sweeney Boo, Tony Fleece, Minimiko, Mali, and Trish Forstner. Forstner, yeah. IDW Publishing gives us Earth Divers number one from Stefan Graham Jones and David Gianfelice. Stefan Graham Jones makes his ongoing comics debut with Earth Divers. The year is 2112, and it's the apocalypse exactly as expected. Rivers receding, oceans rising, civilizations crumbling. Humanity has given up hope, except for a group of outcasts, indigenous survivors, who have discovered a time travel portal in a cave in the middle of the desert and figured out where the world took a sharp turn for the worst. America. Convinced that was the only way to save the world was to rewrite the past, they send one of their own onto a bloody one-way mission back to 1492 to kill Christopher Columbus before he reaches the so-called New World. But taking down an icon is no easy task, and his actions could prove devastating for his friends in the future. I mean, mission to kill Christopher Columbus, that's like Loki saying, I'm gonna go back in time and kill Hitler. It's the same level of like, oh right, this is gonna be a crazy adventure. Uh, covers for this one by Raphael Albuquerque, Christian Ward, Maria Wolf, and Campbell. Just Campbell, apparently. Image Comics this week gives us Kaya, number one. A jam-packed series premiere with 31 gorgeous story pages, plus bonus material, and a Jack Kirby-inspired variant cover by Deadly Class co-creator Wes Craig. After the destruction of their village, a young girl with a magic arm and a fighting spirit is tasked with delivering her little brother to a faraway safe haven. There, he's destined to discover the secret to overthrowing the all-powerful empire that destroyed their home. From writer and artist Wes Craig comes an astonishing new ongoing fantasy adventure series about sibling survival in a world of monsters and mutants. Everything here is by Wes Craig. From Scout Comics, we have Killchella number one, which I have nothing written for for some reason. So cool. Uh, Dark Horse Comics, we have Night of the Ghoul number one by Scott Snyder and Francesco Francavilla. Shot in 1936, Night of the Ghoul by writer-director T.F. Merritt was meant to sit by Frankenstein and Dracula as an instant classic, but the legendary film never made, to it, to it, never made it to the silver screen. Just before editing was finished, a mysterious studio fire destroyed the footage and killed the cast and crew celebrating at the rap party. Forrest Inman is a horror film obsessive who digitizes old films for the famed Aurora movie studio. When Forrest stumbles across a seemingly forgotten canister of footage, he just might have discovered the remnants of the lost classic Night of the Ghoul. This discovery sends Forrest on a dark odyssey where he's warned by a mysterious old man that the film's ghoul is far more of is far more than a work of fiction. It's a very real monster who plans to kill him. This one has covers by Francesco Francavilla, Tula Lotte, French Francis Manapul, and J.H. Williams III. Dynamite has three coming this Wednesday. First off, we're going to talk Siren's Gate number one by Shannon Mayer. This is actually Shannon Mayer, male, he, he, him. Um, 
doing writing and art. Uh, as well as the cover. So it says, Red Hot Artist Shannon Mayer's covers have been showcased on some of the best-selling books in the industry. And fans have asked for years when he will draw interiors. Well, wait no more, as Shannon makes his writing and interior art debut with his fiendish tale, this fiendish tale that explores the very nature of what we call reality, illuminated with a kind of stunning artwork that only he can deliver. Tara, an aspiring writer, has never thought of herself as anyone special. For better or for worse, all of that is about to change. When a mysterious young man extends an unexpected invitation, Tara is awed at the opportunity to meet with her literary idol, Lady Rose. This unique encounter sparks a series of events, forever thrusting her into the world of the unimaginable. We've got covers by Shannon Mare, Ariel Diaz, Sora Song, and Sun Kamunaki. Uh, Sweet Candy Vigilante number one has an extremely long solicit, so we're not going to bother reading that. I will just say that it is by Suzanne Cafiero and art by Jeff Zornow, with covers by Jeff Zornow, Ron Leary Jr., John he Ooh, Josh Hayward, and Jay Ferguson. Finally, Unbreakable Redstonia number one is by Jim Zub, with art by Giovanni Vallada. As we head towards the 50th anniversary of The She-Devil with a Sword in 2023, Dynamite Entertainment is proud to present a sweeping story of a sword and sorcery and high adventure by writer Jim Zub, who apparently has done Conan the Barbarian, Dungeons and Dragons, as well as Avengers, and artist Giovanni Vallada of John Wick and James Bond. In this debut issue, Red Sonia carries a hazy vision that lurks just out of reach of her memories. The answer to that mysterious moment will unlock a journey of forbidden magic and searing steel as Sonia's past and present collide in a quest beyond anything our scarlet-haired hero has faced before. Covers are by Lucio Parillo, Selena, Giuseppe Matteoni, David Finch, Judy Jong, Dan Panosian, Roberto Castro, Roberto Della Torre, Inyokli, Sarah Song, V... I feel like that was probably supposed to say something that was pasted there and just put the wrong thing in, uh, as well as a cosplay cover and blank covers. I should edit my notes better. Marvel has two that I'm picking out this week, uh, and they are both um, Judgment Day tie-ins. The first one is the Star Fox one-shot by Kieran Gillen and Danielle DeNicolo. Nicolo? Eros the Eternal, Star Fox the Titan, the equal of his brother Thanos, matching his achievements every step of the what? Oh, but you know what they say. Come the hour, come the intergalactic layabout who'd rather have a drink. At least if this is Judgment Day, he won't be around for a hangover tomorrow. That's kind of a cluster cluster of a, it'll say cluster of a solicit. Uh, covers here by Danielle DiNicuolo, Chrissy Zulu, and Kevin Wada, who I love. Axe X-Men number one is the other one shot. It says that it's story critical, but as we saw with that really dumb Iron Man one last week, that is not true. <laughs> uh, what it says was, it wasn't her, it wasn't her, it wasn't her, it wasn't her. Yet, I am fire and life incarnate now and forever. Which part of now and forever is confusing to you? As one world burns, can Jean Grey justify her existence after burning another? This is obviously going to deal with the Phoenix stuff. By Karen Gillen and Francesco Mobili, with covers by Nick Klein, Art Adams, and Salvador La Roca. Lastly, we'll talk about DC Comics this week, starting with Dark Crisis, The Deadly Green, number one, by Joshua Williamson, Dan Waters, and Rom V, with art by Tom Derenick, Brent Peoples, Daniel Bayliss, and George Cambadice. Cambadais? I'm sorry. 
Superman and Swamp Thing uncover the secrets of the Great Darkness. During the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, Swamp Thing encountered and formed a truce with the Great Darkness. But this ancient force has been awakened by Pariah, and now its influence is felt across the multiverse. Now the Avatar of the Green must work together with new allies to investigate how far it spread and why it would work with Pariah. If they want to stop the Great Darkness from swallowing the Green, they need some extra help. Enter Super Swamp Thing. Dun dun dun. This has covers by Goni Montez, Felipe Massafera, and Steve Beach. Gotham City Year One comes from Tom King and Phil Hester. I think this is a six issue series with covers by Phil Hester, Ryan Sook, and David Marquez. As much as I really enjoy Tom King's writing, I am getting a little bit sick and tired of seeing all these series that he does with 100% male creators. Getting a little annoyed by that. Uh, but what this says is, chapter one, there was one shining city on the water, a home for families, hope, and prosperity. It was Gotham, and it was glorious. The story of its fall from grace, the legend that it would birth the bat, has remained untold for 80 years. That's about to change. Superstar creators Tom King and Phil Hester team up for the first time to tell the definitive origin of Gotham City, how it became the cesspool of violence and corruption it is today, and how it harbored and then unleashed the sin that led to the rise of the Dark Knight. Two generations before Batman, private investigator Slam Bradley gets tangled in, quote, the kidnapping of the century, as the infant Wayne heir disappears in the night, and so begins a brutal, hard-boiled epic tale of a man living on the edge of a city about to burn. On the complete flip side, Poison Ivy Number 5 is by G. Willow Wilson and Marcio Takara, with covers by Diska Fong, Shevin Shejik? I'm so sorry, it's the weird one. It's Sejik, I don't know how to say his first name. Uh, David Talaski and Tula Lote. Hello, sweetie. You're absolutely pathetic. You know that, right? Luckily for you, Daddy's home, and he's here to make all the bad feelings go away. As Ivy prepares for to go international with her mission to save the Earth, there's only one thing standing in her way. The brave man whom Ivy stole her powers from. God damn it, they're doing that? Ugh! Obviously, that last part wasn't part of the solicitation, if I need to clarify that. They seem to be changing her origin again. Ugh. All right, we'll see. G. Willow Wilson, give me strength. Or rather, please be good at this. Uh, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, number five, chapter five, Together, War at the Hall of Justice. This will be by Joshua Williamson and Daniel Sampare, with covers by Daniel Sampare, Ivan Reese, Ariel Colon, and Mikael Janin. Finally, Batman 128 by Chip Sarsky and Jorge Jimenez, with covers by Jimenez, Gabriel Delato, Francesco Matina, Ryan Sook, Jock, Guillaume March, and Tiago da Silva. This is Failsafe Part 4 and Zen or Zuren R here 1, which if you've been keeping up with, you know exactly what that means. Otherwise, it is all gibberish. Next up, we're going to be talking about She-Hulk Episode 7, titled The Retreat. Now, this episode was very much an improvement from the last. Um, I do feel a little bit better about the show after watching this one than I did after watching the last few. I know previously I had been pretty critical about it, and honestly, I still do hold those opinions. Um, but this episode was a little bit of improvement because part of my critiques was there was really... There's really no connection to the comics. Like, they, they just, there's all of this room for connections, and they just d don't do it. 
and there was all this stuff they could have like established that was from the comics like her family dynamic and whatnot and they just changed it and there's been no reason to those changes which has all been very frustrating to me. Now, while there's still no reason for the changes that they've made, um, we have some fun comic stuff happening in this one. So obviously, uh, being titled The Retreat, Jen, for you know reasons, has to go out uh, and check on uh, Abomination, of course, played by Tim Roth, um, and she ends up spending the whole day at his like retreat place that he has now, um, which I don't know if it's called Abomastay or if that's just like some kind of tagline, but that was hilarious. Obviously, that's a play on Abomination and Namaste, and it's funny because, I mean, his the, the name is Abomination. If you don't get it, I don't think I can explain it to you. <laughs> um, a couple of the uh, heroes and villains in... Uh, in recovery, I guess you would say, um, that we see. We've got a couple of them here. One is Manbull, who is played by Nathan Hurd. Uh, he was originally created in 1971 by Jerry Conway and Gene Colan, two really big names back at, during that era. Uh, he it goes by William Torrens, uh, of course, because they cannot, they cannot create a comic book character without a pun in the name. It's T-A-R, sorry, T-A-U-R-E-N-S, obviously because like Taurus Mandel, they can't not make puns. Uh, anyway, William Torrens, a serum turned him into a looming half-man, half-bull creature, and he spent the first his first appearance fighting Daredevil. Um, and then we have El Aguila, 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 Aguila. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm having trouble with that right this second. Played by Joseph Castillo Midier. Uh, he was created by Joe Duffy, Trevor Von Eden, and Dave Cockrum. First appeared in 1979's Power Man and Iron Fist number 58. His real name is Alejandro Mentoya. He is a mutant that sometimes found himself on the wrong side of the heroes for hire, although his intentions were generally good. Uh, in the show, the joke is that he looks like a matador, he kind of acts like a matador, he kind of sounds like a matador, but he insists that he is not a matador, although he did take a couple of matador classes in college, which I found to be pretty funny because obviously if we took any matador classes in college, it's because you were a matador. <laughs> uh, and then we have Porcupine, who was pretty funny to see. He was created by Stan Lee, Ernest Hart, and Don Heck back in 1963 for Tales to Astonish number 48. I did not get the actor's name. I really think I should have, but um, Por Porcupine is probably the closest reference to like modern comics that we've gotten in the series so far. You know, we had Mr. Immortal, nothing. Uh, but Porcupine, uh, Mr. Immortal, you know, West Coast Avengers, uh, not West Coast, um, first appearance of West Coast Avengers, but it was uh, Great Lakes Avengers, the team he was on. Who, who cares, literally. Uh, but Porcupine has been in Spider-Woman comics quite a bit recently. The past couple of years, well, the past couple of series that she had, uh, she ended up kind of teaming up with him and then dating him. And in the most recent series, uh, he was going to propose to her and her Spider-Woman life. Did I say Spider-Woman, Jessica Drew? I don't even know if I got that far, but, um, anyway, her Spider-Woman life ends up taking precedence, and he leaves her, um, with her newborn baby. God, that sounds way worse than it actually was. It's not his baby. It's not his baby, just to clarify. Um, 
but at some point in history, I'm sure the identity of Spider-Woman's baby daddy will be revealed. It was a, uh, I'm getting way off track. It was a anonymous donor, but it's, they definitely are holding on to that to make it relevant at some point in the history. Anyway, moving on, we also have Saracen, who uh, they made the joke saying he believes he's a vampire. He was created by Bart Sears in 1998 for Blade Vampire Hunter number one, and he was played by Terrence Clow. Then we had Wrecker, who showed back up after we saw him in a couple episodes a couple episodes ago as part of the Wrecking Crew, which was a pathetic attempt to steal Jen's blood that obviously did not get anywhere near working. But he shows up here, uh, played by Nick Gomez. Wrecker was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby in 1967 in Thor 148, of all things. In this episode, uh, when Jen sees him here at the, you know, Abomaste retreat, whatever it is that they call this place. Um, she obviously recognizes him immediately as one of the guys who attacked her the other night and gets all huffy and turns to She-Hulk and then they basically all sit down together and have like this great therapy session for Jen where she uh, deletes Josh's number after, oh yeah, that was the other thing. So there was that guy Josh from the wedding, right? So she went on a bunch of dates with him and finally sleeps with him. And then when she sleeps with him, she wakes up in the morning and he's gone and he doesn't return her calls and he doesn't return her texts. Um, and it's been a couple of days by the time she goes to the retreat and talks to those guys about this. And they're like her weird therapy session. It's a couple of days since she's heard from him at that point. So it's pretty obvious that he has. I don't want to say the saying that I'm thinking of. Oh, I will. It's it's a really terrible saying that I heard in um, Hitch. No, was it Hitch? Yeah, I think it was Hitch. Get in, get off, get out. That's basically what our assumption is Josh wanted to do with this whole She-Hulk situation. Um, or rather, Jen, because he was seeing her as Jen and not She-Hulk. Uh, but anyway, in the end of the episode, um, we get a solution or the answer to what it is that Josh was doing. As I predicted, uh, he was there only to get a blood sample for her from her. Um, he also copied her phone, which I'm curious what that actually means. I've, I, I don't, I, does that mean that you get the, the, all the info on the phone or like all the info that would be added to the phone in the future or just like get her messages? I don't, I don't know what it is that it really does, but he copied it, whatever that means. Um, Basically, what it looks like is he was going out with her as Jen so that when they sleep together, he could get her blood sample as Jen because, obviously, with She-Hulk, he wouldn't be able to break through the skin to get a blood sample. So, um, so he gets the blood sample, copies her phone, uh, and then dips out to give it to somebody identified on his phone as a Hulk emoji and a crown emoji. And, uh, so that's, you know, that's definitely leader, right? I don't think anybody's debating that at this point. Adding to that, the leader is also a member of the comic book Intelligentsia, which we already know from the show is in the show and out to get Jen slash She-Hulk. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if we're going to see him here because, you know, we're supposed to be seeing him also as the main villain in Captain America, what is it, New World Order coming out in the future at some point. Um, so they might just do the, like, the lead-up to Thanos thing that they've been doing, that they had done, I guess. Um, with, like, yeah, he, he's, he's there, but you're not really going to see it until later. Which would mean this show is only really a semi-stepping stone for his character to be introduced 
which still sucks. So anyway, questions that we still would like to have addressed in these last two episodes, episodes eight and nine. Uh, Nikki, I have been asking this since the beginning. Who the hell is Nikki and why is she here? Um, and based on the trailer um, and the first few episodes, it seemed very clear that Nikki hired Titania to attack the courtroom so that Jen would transform into She-Hulk and get a better lawyer job for GLK and H, which is exactly what happened. But they haven't actually said that. But everything, you know, is very clearly points to that being what happened. Um, so I'm wondering if we're going to get that address at all or if they're just going to kind of leave us there hanging with this random-ass best friend they just created out of their butts because they could? Give me a reason for the Nikki creation, the Nikki character to even exist. There is no reason right now. I, I'm very confused by it. Daredevil, obviously, he's going to show up probably in this episode 8 this week. Um, at the very latest, you know, episode 9 because they want to make a sweat or something. I don't know. Um, I would also like them to address her status as an everyday hero. Um, we know that she's going to be getting some kind of uh, super suit, hero suit kind of thing. And she doesn't really see herself as a hero right now. She just kind of fell into this position and does things as they need to be done and fights Titania. Um, but I'm kind of hoping by the end of the show, we get her sort of definitively deciding that she's going to be this like street level, keep an eye on my neighborhood hero who like, you know, goes out on and does rounds at night to make sure, you know, the way that Daredevil and everybody does. They go stand on buildings and listen for noise like Batman, you know, classic superhero nighttime round stuff. And she could do it during the day too, because she, you know, can, or she can do lawyer stuff during the day. But whatever it is, I'd like for that to be established, um, about her, like, doing solo heroing out in the New York streets. Or I guess she's in LA, so maybe it'd be LA then? I don't know. Uh, but the last thing I would like to be addressed, I've already mentioned, is her family and really everything else that was changed from the comic status quo to be something completely different. Um, her family in the comics is, consists solely of her father because her mom had been killed previously and she had no siblings. Um, and no other family are ever really mentioned in the comics. For some reason in this, we are not only introduced to her mother still being alive, her father is not a cop the way he is in the comics either. We also get a cousin Ched, or Chet, for some reason, and he is doesn't really have a he's he's just a kind of a funny character but no purpose and no plot development with him so he's just kind of there and we get Chet's parents also but why literally why any of this and i know you could just say why not but why didn't they just keep it the way it was and like why bother to make these changes it hasn't added anything to to the character of shield <laughs> um if anything, it's made her kind of soft, I would say. So, I, I I don't know. I just really bothered with, why did you bother to make these changes if there was not a reason behind them? And that's probably going to be an issue that I have for the rest of the show, to be honest. Which leaves us with Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, Episode 6, Udun. Udun? Not Udon. I also made that mistake and got very hungry. We are not talking noodles which is unfortunate at all times that you're not talking noodles. But anyway, a uh, great episode. I have up here on my phone this TikToker who I recently followed, I don't know, like a couple of weeks ago, I guess. Uh, super cool dude. I don't know what his name is. Don't know what his name is. I can't seem to find his name here. But um, 
he it goes by new better do better which it's not better it's better so when you search it new better do better um i know there's a couple of fairly famous lord of the rings tiktokers he is my favorite um he also happens to be one who is extremely knowledgeable about the silmarillion um and more of the extended tolkien legacies lore i'd say lore um Rather than some of the other, you know, there's, there's that white guy who made the shirt who I can't, he like does all those thirst traps that really creep me out. Um, but I know he, it's, he, he, he knows more of like the actual trilogy stuff. This guy knows a lot more extended universe shit, which is what I don't really know, but I would like to know. And, uh, that's obviously what the show is involving around a lot. So I highly recommend you following him again, new better, do better. Uh, K-N-E-W, new better, new better, do better. Uh, highly recommend you following him. He's got some great videos. He also, um, Mm, happens to match pretty much line to line with what my theories are, so it's a little bit of a justification too. So, <laughs> Ujin, um, obviously this was like an amazing episode. I'm gonna spoil the heck out of it, so if you haven't watched it and you don't want it spoiled, get the heck out of here. Um, I guess we just decided to say heck a lot today. Uh, there are two more episodes in the season. We're doing eight episodes. Um, Man, I just this was a great episode for so many reasons. I know people some people are bitching about the pacing. I genuinely I I don't understand that. Pace has to change depending on what part of the story you're gonna tell. That's just nature of the beast. I don't get compa complaining about, oh, well, this episode was a week and this episode was a day. Like that's not that's just a story. That's how you tell stories. Um, but yeah, this this was fantastic. Um, obviously, the main event here was we see the creation of Mount Doom. And I was looking through articles trying to find like Easter eggs and stuff. There really aren't any <laughs> uh, for this show that I can find. But one article I found was like, it said, this could this be the creation of Mount Doom? It's very pot. Yes, it was the creation of Mount Doom, you idiot. I'm sorry, but what? How do you not? It's not possible. It's factual. <laughs> this is no way it was anything else. This is 100% the creation of Mount Doom. What is the relevancy of Mount Doom? Mount Doom is where the, you know, the, the Ring of Power, the One Ring, was both created and the only place that it could be destroyed. Um... And yes, this does bring in a lot of questions of pre-planning because yeah, to get the mountain to ex the volcano is what it is. To get the volcano to blow for the first time and become Mount Doom and destroy all of the area and land around it, they had to trigger that, right? And so yes, they had to have a slight knowledge of like thermodynamics and physics. Is that really that bizarre? Again, we're talking a place with dwarves and elves, so I'm going to go with massively no. It's not weird. <laughs> There's a lot of other weird stuff going on, but being smart is not one of them. <laughs> we get the really cool battle between the orcs, um, or Urukai, as I guess we hear Adar, you know, Uruk, not Urukai, just Uruk is what he was saying. Um... We get Adar to explain, which, by the way, I was 100% right about Adar. My theory was he's probably, like, some kind of first-generation orc who was, like, not quite a full orc, and so that's why he still looks mostly elf. Bitch, I was right on that one. I was 100% correct. I got so excited about that. Um, <laughs> so justified. <laughs> 
And they had the big battle right before that, right? Where um, you get Izzy Lador, who joins the battle in time to help his father. Uh, Elendil, which I gotta rewatch the fuck. Excuse me. I gotta rewatch the the uh, OG trilogy again. It's been a while because I was watching this episode when I suddenly remembered, oh yeah, the lore goes that when they're battling Sauron... Isilador's father dies, right? Elendil is killed in battle, and that's why Isilador picks up his broken sword, or picks up his sword, and uses it to cut off the hand, or the ring, the fingers of Sauron, including the ring. And that's the little battle ends, he refuses to kill it, blah blah blah, you know. Um, Isilador, you have a great and terrible destiny. Like, you are the definition of great and terrible destinies. But anyway, it was a bit crushing to remember that that's how their fate kind of ends up as father and son. Surviving this battle won't be surviving them all, though. It's just not in the cards. Other things in this battle, um, obviously Galadriel is a boss. Um, I, I've, I've seen all of one person trying to make fun of her doing those fancy horse moves um, because all the rest of them are being completely shut down by people who have actually seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy um, and have seen that it's not new that elves can do that kind of stuff. Legolas was flipping himself across horses mid-stride, you know, back in 2005 or whatever. I think it was actually way earlier than that. But anyway, not weird. But it is totally cool that she did this, she did the Arwen thing, right? Because Arwen's her granddaughter, Galadriel's granddaughter, right? Uh, so it's cool that she has the same kind of relationship with the horse that she rides as Arwen does. We see in the fellowship with her horse, you know, urging them on with their um, elf speak. And I don't, I, th I think, I think I remember hearing when I was younger about that they actually have like slightly more power. They give the horses some more power. That's why it kind of goes, works that way. I don't know. I could be spit, I could be just remembering wrong. And that leaves us to, leaves us with Halbrand, who I'm almost 100% convinced is Sauron at this point. Um, <laughs> there, there's that, there's a meme that's been going around that's pretty funny. Um, the old man who initiates the creation of Mount Doom in this episode, right? Who tries and goes to join Adar and everything, kills a little boy, all of that stuff. Um, he, um, in one of the previous episodes, he said that thing that was like, you are Sauron, are you not? And so people are making all these memes of that frame with that line of captions and like every character of the Rings of Power show because everybody's trying to figure out who Sauron is. And there was no that that like religious looking tribe of of priestly looking people who were somewhat feminine. Um they didn't even show up in this episode. So who knows what the heck is going on with that, but I fully expect to see a lot of that information filled in in the next episode since this one was pretty much, well, it was entirely focused on the Southlands. Uh, so we're probably going to get a lot more filled in in the next episode on what's going on everywhere else, and then all of the plots will tie up in the last episode. But yeah, Halbrand is totally Sauron. There's a couple of reasons why I think this. Uh, the first time that he encounters Adar, he, you know, says, you remember, you know who I am, and Adar looks at him and, like, gets shocked in his face very clearly, and is like, no, 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 and starts to panic, right? Um, and then he goes, like, he's gonna kill Adar, and it's Galadriel who stops him. Obviously, if Adar thinks that he killed Sauron, as he tells Galadriel he thinks he did, um, Sauron's probably not too happy with this guy, well, in whatever 
form he's in at this point. And also the fact that we are not really sure whose people Halbrand belongs to. We know that Isilador and his father Elendil obviously go on to create the line of kings of Gondor, right? Um, and that's where we get Aragorn. We also are going to end up having, way down the line, uh, Rohan. But there's no really reason to think that uh, Heimdall, <laughs> Halbrand, is connected to Rohan at all. Um, and, you know, the whole thing about Sauron was that he appears as this very attractive human to, or elf, I guess, in some of the lore, to try and seduce people to his side. And he would, um, you know, be an excellent leader because people would then follow him no matter what he did, right? Um, psychology is a big part of what Sauron did, or does, however you want to look at that. So it would really make sense that he would show up as Halbrand, whether or not he kind of knows who he is, I don't really know how that would work, um, and kind of pull one over on people that way. Um, there was also the line about the real Numenor, um, and we know that the destruction of Numenor is pressingly imminent. I am not sure if the creation of Mount Doom is what spurs the tsunami that will then flood and destroy Numenor. Um, but I was also watching the videos by that TikToker I just mentioned a little bit ago, Nubeta Dubeta. Um, he, Sauron, he is apparently killed during the destruction of Numenor because apparently he is physically there when it is flooded and destroyed. Um, so something's going on with Numenor. I, I feel like we're missing something here and they're going to fill us in coming up, but, um, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I was saying that, oh yeah, the creation of Mount Doom is why Numenor is going to flood is because all of that geographical change and stuff in the water is why that happens. But after hearing the, uh, about how Sauron is in Numenor when it drowns, I don't know about that. I feel like there's a little bit more uh, we're going to see of Numenor before it is completely gone. So I don't know. We'll see. But that wraps up today's episode. I got super excited about a lot of the stuff that we were talking about. So I really hope that you guys got some enjoyment out of it. Um, let's see. Today is the 4th of October. I actually start my new job tomorrow. Go me. I don't think it should be affecting any anything really. Um... Uh, but I will keep you posted if it does for the podcast affects anything. Uh, let's see what else, what else? Werewolf by Night is obviously Friday, so I will be watching that this weekend for sure. Uh, we have the uh, penultimate episodes of both Rings of Power and She-Hulk coming this week on Thursday and Friday, respectively. And I think that's that's what we're looking forward to for the next episode or so, is wrapping up those shows, keeping up with comics and news. We're going to talk Werewolf by Night once we watch that. Um, and we'll always have some sweaty comic content. So have a great week. Um, the weather is nice and fallish out there, so get some time outside, look at the grass, <laughs> uh, and see you next time.